Yes, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, descend upon our hearts. That is our desire. <clears throat> well, if you've read the bulletin, you're familiar with the title. And I'd like to begin, but certainly not finish, considering the Holy Spirit's work and part in revival, in every revival through history uh, since Pentecost. And I say since Pentecost, as some believe, myself included, that each subsequent revival has been but a repetition of Pentecost in many of its characteristics and features and as to the specific activity of the Holy Spirit in true revivals. This year is coming to a close, and in my own mind, as this is the last day of 2023, I feel I'm running out of time, and I feel a sense of urgency where I view this as my last opportunity to see in your countenances what I've desired to see all year. In hearing and watching, I have been very vigilant as there has been, as it were, much groundwork laid, and not only what I have showed as to who God is, and how critical to our salvation and happiness it is to know Him, the only true God, which from Christ's own mouth is salvation. But also what others have brought to the table in this respect. And I think, for example, I have listened with great enthusiasm and excitement to some of the profound insights that Michael Hicks brought this year. Why the thrill? Well, because I felt keenly his messages were complementary. There was, uh, there has been this kind of intermeshing, uh, a dovetailing together of the truths that I feel we were both propounding. Uh, let me give you a synopsis of this just to make that clear. I began my who is God question with exactly the description that God gives of himself through the inspired word of spoken by the Apostle John, God is love. Now, Brother Michael, when answering the question, who is God, went further, went deeper, and showed God is Trinity. Remember that? We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That was from the Athanasian Creed. It's the opening line. And this creed was named after Athanasius, he was uh, the champion of orthodoxy against Arian attacks on the doctrine of the Trinity, which Athanasius asserted is the true and Catholic or universal. By Catholic, he's not talking about Roman Catholic, but it is the universal faith. And this is what it says. I'll quote, Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will undoubtedly perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic or universal faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. And what is the unity in the Trinity? What does unify them? What, what unifies them? What is the interplay and sharing amidst them and among them. Love. God is love. And only a Trinitarian God 
could be love and loving. And that's a sermon in itself. All other gods, or those that are called gods, are singular and alone, with no capacity to love. Lord willing, I'd like to speak on that next time. But for right now, I have to believe that in all true preaching, and with all true preachers as they come to the pulpit and deliver a God-breathed message to the people, there is an observation, a waiting and watching and listening. Well, a waiting and watching and listening for what? In a word, a Holy Spirit wrought revival or awakening, a stirring. Revival or awakening can occur in one or with a whole community of people. The terms revival and awakening are sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, Charles and I were talking about this last night. But many of us naturally uh, think of the Great Awakening, which uh, is often referred to as revival. So John MacArthur wrote this, quote, The Great Awakening was a dramatic revival that began in New England in the mid-18th century and swept the colonies before it finally subsided. Multitudes were converted, converted in the awakening, and the spiritual climate of colonial America was transformed. Even in secular history books, the Great Awakening is treated as one of the most significant events in early American history. Now, there was a second Great Awakening that occurred uh, around 1800, and it reached out uh, to uh, was with some difference and uh, than the first one, but uh, some some like to kind of differentiate in this manner. Uh, unlike the Second Great Awakening, which began about 1800 and reached out to the unchurched, the First Great Awakening focused on people who were already church members, and it changed their rituals, their piety, and their self-awareness, end quote. Now, obviously, it's not my purpose to just chase revivals, nor can I in a few minutes cover the magnitude of this, of this subject, parts of which I'm not interested in at this time, as they're not really pertinent to our emphasis now. It is my purpose to simply focus on and zero in on certain aspects of the subject for our own understanding and our own edification. No man can cause or generate a revival. We talked about the fallacy of that thinking and the fallacy of that expectation. But in the heart, in your hearts, in the heart of every committed Christian, there is this longing for personal revival. To know the quality and the depths of spiritual reality in the presence of God in one's personal life. I'm talking about His loving presence in the presence of God and the sweet assurance of His love. Once the believer has tasted the sweetness of this blessed assurance of the love of Christ, this almighty and never-ending eternal love of God, he cannot live without it. He lives for it. He prays for it. He thirsts for it. He pants for it. Listen to the psalmist in the 42nd Psalm. As the deer panteth after the water brooks, the psalmist bemoans 
So panteth my soul after Thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God, the true, the real, the only God. When shall I come and appear before Him, the lover of my soul? As, as if to say, He has left. He is absent. And when shall He come and reappear and I come and appear before Him? Now he shows himself strange to me and even even ugly to me. What has happened? Where has he gone? He says, my tears have been my meat day and night. When I remember the psalmist is saying this real and loving relationship, my soul relished with him. And now it's gone. I pour out my soul within me. He remembered when he possessed this love and this love possessed him as he had, quote, had gone to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, he says. Can you identify with all this, brethren? It, it is a principle that is all through the scripture. We, we spoke of this in the past and I think it bears repeating. David experienced this coming and going with God, which really equates to his presence and his absence. So, so significant. And I dare say, dear child of God, the crux of your problem and the crux of mine is this same exact experience of this coming and, and going, this presence and absence of our Lord. And it is, I would say even stronger, what is underneath and what is behind every true Christian's spiritual bipolarism. Though some believers are more keenly aware of it. And I do not think that what I have come to see is an oversimplification of what's going on with all of us who name the name of Christ. Revival is in its distilled essence and put in its simplest form is this coming or returning of God to the soul, to the heart. And when He comes, His love comes with Him. Without His love, as we have emphasized repeatedly, I am nothing. He comes speaking love and shedding abroad love, showering it upon us. Love is in His person and in His presence. There is also an intimacy in His presence. His coming or presence is not to be understood as simply being together in the same room. It is much stronger. His presence intimates a very close and personal nearness, yea, an indwellment, an abiding with and an abiding in. Draw near to God, Ephesians 3.18, and He will draw near to you. Very near. And when He comes in His presence, love is in His presence with Him. For they are inseparable and always come and go together. And is the reason there exists an extreme delight and happiness in this divine and beautiful presence. The sweet psalmist of Israel said it best. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In Thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now notice, 
Notice closely those two prepositions in the two phrases, in thy presence and at thy right hand. Both of which are speaking of this intimate divine nearness. In Psalm 16:8, David expresses the same. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. If he was any further away or totally absented himself from me, I would be moved. You see the absolute necessity in the heart of David to know this real, true, and intimate relationship. If I could, I would hold him and never let him go. In his presence is fullness of joy and strength, but in his absence is fullness of unsettledness, disquietude, and utter weakness. That joy, the fullness of joy of the Lord that is our strength, is found, is experienced in His presence. Phrases such as with us, yea, in us, that close, that near. Whenever this is lost or absent, the Christian is of all men most miserable. That's the bottom line, agree or disagree. And I submit to you that this is the essence of revival. Whether in an individual or a whole community, this is what I want to show. When God comes, which equates to His presence, in the nearness I have just been describing, then revival or this awakening occurs. And most critically important to our understanding is the form in which He comes. Remember our hymn, all the forms of love he wears. Oh, could I sing the matchless worth? How is his coming or presence manifested, made known, felt, or presented uh, to one believer or several together? That's the first thing. And the answer is by way of the Holy Spirit. This is the form of love he wears. This is the form in which he comes or it or presents presence. So the Holy Spirit is the form through which the father and the son communicate. But now profoundly, it is the communication of love and a love form. God is love. He is all about love. Because he is love. All his works and ways are expressed, expressions of who he is, love. The Holy Spirit is love. It is his essence as well. He is the communicator of love. He communicates love to us, Romans 5, 5. And listen, he communicates love between the Father and the Son. And with that, I want to share Jonathan Edwards' profound insights regarding three of the concepts we have been contemplating to this point. And I am at this juncture really calling you to think and calling for you to connect the dots of all that we have been saying to date. Three things I want you to listen for are are these. One, The love of God is prominent in Edwards' thinking and writings and why it was so prominent. Secondly, listen for Edwards' thinking on where the love of God 
which we love and long for originates? Where, where does it come from? Where does it where does it start? And here the third consideration from Edward's own words, if God is love, which we would apply to each member of the Trinity, did it mean something different or did it mean something more that the Holy Spirit is love in Edward's mind? And this I find most fascinating and thrilling. And it is also the most pertinent to the aspect of the subject that we are now in. So we will read his thoughts on that last. But starting with the first thing I would have you listen for is the the prominence of the love of God in Edward's life. And coupled with this, you will hear in Edward's own words how it could not be said that God is love if he was not triune, Trinitarian, or a three-person God. You see, a singular God, or what is termed a monad, theologically, or monadic God, can't love anything but himself. And is inward and is taking. And therefore, he needs slaves. Uh, Whereas our triune God is outward and giving, and he desires sons. This concept is captured clearly in C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. Which is a kind of a, well it is, it's a satire, uh, but some have called it a satirical Christian apologetics novel. In brief, the story takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, a junior demon named Wormwood. This dialogue between them very clearly shows the difference and the beauty of our triune God. Indulge me here a bit. So <clears throat> Screwtape says, quote, One must face the fact that all God's talk about his love for man and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale would be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We, says Screwtape to Wormwood, want cattle that we can finally have food. He wants servants that can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. So a very clear illustration of the difference between the living God and idols. And more to our point and to Edward's strong belief, the difference between a solitary singular or this monadic God and our Trinitarian God. And the fact and principle that our God could not be eternally defined as love if there were not three persons or he was not triune. Listen for this from Edwards. This is from Dane Ortland's book, Edwards on the Christian Life, Alive to the Beauty of God. He says, and I'll, need to, and I'll read this fast for the sake of time, so maybe you can listen fast. Augustine has been called the theologian of love, and rightly so. But Jonathan Edwards could equally lay claim to that title, 
One scholar called Edwards the theologian of the great commandment. If there is one mark of the Christian life to which Edwards returns more than any other, it is love. Love, Edwards says, is, quote, the life and soul of all true religion. What, writes Ortland, is the essence of the Christian life, tunneling down, drilling in to the very heart and pulsating core of what it means to be a follower of Christ? What do we find? Edwards answers, love. <clears throat> and get this, this, this speaks to the origin of this love. We consider Edward's vision of love. We begin by reflecting on what he believed is the fountain of all true love. God's own love among the persons of the Trinity. Edwards continues, the fountain of all Christian loving is the love of God himself. This love has existed within the Godhead from all eternity. Now here, more subtle, Edward shows that God is love and only could be uh, love and loving because he is Trinity or three persons versus a singular or a solitary one person God. Reflecting on the places in 1 John where we are told that God is love, 1 John 4, 8 and 16, Edwards argues that this assertion shows that there are more persons than one in the deity. For it shows love to be essential and necessary to the deity so that his nature consists in it. Love is who God is. For God to love is for God to be God. The very nature of God is love. If it should be inquired what God is, it might be answered that He is an infinite and incomprehensible fountain of love. Now here's the part that blew my mind. Something I'm still digesting, hadn't seen it before, but I think that Edwards is concluding right. He wrote this famous uh, discourse on the Trinity, and he describes the Trinity precisely in terms of intra-Trinitarian love. Christ, now we're talking about the second person of the Godhead. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is God's idea of himself. The form, image, representation of the Father. Their love and joy is mutual. In mutually loving and delighting in each other, Edwards then makes this striking claim that this holy energy of love between Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. Drawing on 1 John 4, he suggested if God dwelling in believers produces love in them and God dwells in believers by His Spirit, <clears throat> then this divine love in them must quite simply, be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's infinite love to Himself and happiness in Himself. Edwards returns to this point repeatedly. For Edwards, the very essence of God is divine love. And this divine love is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is breathed forth in love. Edwards also, and these are my own words for God's outwardness, we'll call it, theologically termed ecstasis. I think you heard that probably from Michael. Uh, ecstasis. God is extroversion, not introversion. 
God is extrospective, not introspective. And because He is love, His love finds vent in creation. All of His creative works were spawned, as it were, from love. God's love fingerprints are on all His creative works. The fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the eternity of space are all reflecting the love of God. This love for Edwards impelled the creation of the world. Orland says the very nature of God's Trinitarian love means it must spill forth in outward expression. It resists being contained. In this, essence, in this sense, God's love is the most unstoppable force in the universe. Static love is self-contradictory. The creation of the world, says Edwards, is to gratify divine love. Wow. Amazing, amazing thoughts. So, with true revival and intrinsic in it is a keen and overwhelming sense of this amazing love of God. It is a vital and central part of the revival and what our hearts are awakened to and ravished with in revival. It is a powerful love and is, I believe, the power from on high that Jesus referred to which was the promise of the Father for which they were not to go forth in their own strength, but to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with it. In Acts 1.8, Jesus describes this experience for them. What it would look like, by whom it would be accomplished, and the boldness and power it would produce in them. John in all four Gospels says, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Acts 1a. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And what will this baptism or is coming upon us produce? Bold witnesses. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. Love struck witnesses. When and only after which Jesus tells them, Ye shall be witnesses unto me. The Holy Spirit coming upon people is very moving. It bolsters faith. And it is a faith, as Paul describes, which worketh by love. By love, love is central in the Holy Spirit's work. And it has been characteristic of every revival. When God comes or the Holy Spirit Coming upon. But in this coming and going reality, there are gradations. So it could be said, the further he goes from me, the greater my misery. And likewise, the nearer he draws to me, the more exceeding and unspeakable my joy and the fuller my personal revival. I suppose it could be said that if he's at neither extreme, you and I can get along. But we're not happily getting along. We are fulfilling our duties and responsibilities in life, but not with much motivation. His love is the spark that's needed in his presence slash coming is fullness of joy. 
as some could argue, John, this keen sense of the joy and love of God was not the only thing occurring in a revival and would point to the great awakening wherein there was conviction of sin. Lloyd-Jones in his book titled Revival says this, That is what happens, he says, in revival, and thus you get this curious, strange mixture, as it were, of a great conviction of sin and great joy, a great sense of the terror of the Lord and great thanksgiving and praise. Always in a revival, there is what somebody once called a, quote, divine disorder. And this can't be argued. John 16:8 proves that he has this other work. Uh, the Holy Spirit has this other work, but my emphasis is on revival, not on awakening. The conviction aspect seems to me to come under the awakening side. Now, before I go any further, I want to stop and speak further and more specifically of the Holy Spirit's work and part in all this. And Edward's thoughts were tremendously helpful as God used him mightily, and he is the man primarily credited, credited for the Great Awakening uh, revival. In his treatise on the religious affections, we all familiar with that? His famous religious affections was all about the happenings uh, and the reactions of those who were pr- profoundly affected in that revival. He is also held and described as the greatest theologian in, in American history. In the religious affections, he speaks to this point of love and joy being a dominant feature in a personal as well as a community revival. Secondly, Edwards points to uh, how God draws near and how he communicates himself to individuals in a revival. And I have to say his insights floored me and they actually made my heart beat faster. Understand, brethren, we are not just interested in panting after religion or Christianity as a lifestyle. The the hunger and thirst of the believer is after a relationship. You understand that? I mean, that was that's been said a great deal through all of us uh, uh, this year. And that's as the psalmist expresses, my soul thirsteth for God. When shall I come and appear before him? Uh, again, it's, it is this nearness. It is my nearness to him and his nearness to me. I crave this close tie, this blessed friendship, the reality of what he promised. And likewise, David, if we think about, we think about David when he talks of a day in thy courts. What is he talking about? <clears throat> When he talks about a day in thy courts or of the amiableness of his tabernacles or his holy hill, his house that he desired to dwell in, he was not talking about the beauty and opulence of the palace or the tabernacle or the house or the geographical location of this. He was not talking at all about where. He was talking about who. That's what made these places amiable. And beautiful. And why he wanted to dwell there. God was in the house. Listen to these words again. Quote, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the T. 
temple, the tent, the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. No, to behold the beauty of the Lord, His beauty. Do you sense the idea of relationship? It has been emphasized much. It is a relationship of love. When is the young bride to be the happiest and most in love? It is when? Yes. And she looks into his eyes. And her heart cry is, I am his and he is mine. This is the relationship we are meant to enjoy. It is the type of victorious life that Christ purchased and paid so dear a price for us to share in. It is real. It is meaningful. And we individually or collectively should give Him no rest until He grants it. And we walk in it. Experience it. It is, in other words, that which the older theologians would refer to as experiential salvation. It is not something way outside of us, way out there and impersonal. It is very personal, actual, and real. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying by those statements. I'm not saying if you are not experiencing the assurance of that reality, uh, then you're not saved. I'm not saying that at all. The question I have for you and for myself is, does your soul long for this relationship? With the living God, as the psalmist put it, my soul thirsts for God, for Him, for Thee, O God, He cries. I am saying, never grow content with a textbook salvation or a dead orthodoxy. Or a salvation that's just on paper. When I think of the sheer magnitude of the price that Christ paid and the indescribable suffering and agony of body, mind, and soul He endured to provide salvation for us, how could it be a salvation that we do not feel? Or a salvation that is not experiential. Salvation is described as a salvation of joy. The joy of salvation is a biblical term. It's an expression. And it's a divine truth. And David, in a way, summarizes this whole sermon. When he says, Restore it. Come back, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. One said, can a man pass from death to life and not know it? Can a man be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and not be aware of it? Can the love of God for you be spread abroad in your hearts and you do not feel it? Is our salvation, after all, an emotionless, stoic, affectionless salvation? I say a resounding, God forbid. And the more I study and the more I realize I'm not alone in this. As this year is coming to a close, I have found myself more earnest in prayer for revival here. I reflected back to the beginning of the year 
when I expressed that there were three things that I desired to preach or teach much about this year. Those three things were the love of God, edification, and revival. And now unwittingly, I see I have discovered two remarkable things uh, that I hope to show, that I hope to prove, Lord willing. And let me qualify. This is what I have come to see and understand. And I don't expect you to believe it just because I say it. <clears throat> so the two things are, the, are these. First is that these three things are inseparable. The love of God, edification, and revival. That's the first thing. They're inseparable. The second kind of uh, epiphany that kind of came to me is that these occur in this exact sequence. So let me try to put it together like this. The epitome of the most extreme happiness and joy a human being can experience, this side of glory, comes about when the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is shed abroad or poured into your heart. This is the edification. The highest form of edification. The highest form of assurance for the believer. You say, well, I don't know if I have felt or experienced that. It, it, it does not change the fact. It does not change the fact. There are times when none of us feel or experience it. But the drooping, despondent believer, regardless of, of how far he feels himself to be, is by this suddenly quickened, awakened, spiritually resuscitated. Yes, upon the heart, that new heart, a spiritual CPR is performed. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Heart and lungs. Holy Spirit, breath of God, breathe on me. Breath of God and stimulate my heart. Shed abroad in my heart the love of God. So this is how personal revival occurs. It occurs in this manner and with this combination. The believer at the moment, at that moment, is experiencing in a very real way the love of Jesus. The lover of his soul is powerfully communicating to him his immense love and care for him. The believer has found a treasure, the pearl of greatest price. And he begins to sing for joy with the hymn writer. I found the pearl of greatest price. My heart doth sing for joy and sing I must. For Christ is mine. You see the assurance? Christ shall my song employ. Three things. Love, edification, revival. This is personal revival. But I would submit to you that community revival, or however you'd say it, or revival within a group of believers also comes with this combination. And I deliberately say believers because the very word revival implies a reviving of one who has spiritual life, but is nigh unto dying. The last flickering embers are about to go out. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit needs to blow on those coals. He needs to revive by a shedding abroad of something. Guess what that is? It is love. According to the Holy Word of God, Romans 5.5. 5. And it's interesting in this light, and we may have to close with this, but for now, in Revelation 2.4, Jesus told the church of Ephesus, 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Is he talking about revival there? Is he, is he talking about leaving a proper priority? In other words, you can have a second, third, or, or fourth love as long as my love is first, or mine tops the list. Is that what he's talking about? And secondly, is he talking about his love shown to them, or is he talking about their love expressed to him when he says you have left it? Whose love was left or departed from? When he says thou hast left thy first love, I don't believe he's talking about a priority love versus a lesser love so much as he's talking about what they knew of this love at first, at the beginning and initially. So some believe he is referring to the time they were saved. And the first love, the initial love that first ravished and, and overjoyed their hearts, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now you see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That love, that first love, he's causing them to look back, reflect back, and says, remember from whence thou art fallen. Think about that love that you once knew. The initial experience of it. The first love. And how your joy was full on account of experiencing it. Then, from whence, he says. But some would argue that Jesus is not talking about his love for them or their love to him. He is talking about himself. They left off with him. As in life, there are many distractions. There are a myriad of them and things that pull our attention away from more important things. So they left him. He, he's referring to himself as their first love. Uh, okay, all right. So who is Christ? Christ is God. And who is God? God is love. But you say, you can't, you can't make Christ synonymous with love and vice versa. But I would say you can't detach them. A loveless Christ equates simply to one giving laws, a lawgiver. And just as Paul says of himself, if, if Christ hath not love, he is nothing. He certainly could not refer to himself as their first love if they couldn't remember a first love experience, a first time experiencing him as love and loving, if they have no recollection of that. It had to occur when a person is first saved, and you can even look at your own experience, they experience extreme happiness and rejoicing. And we as the congregation and as a church rejoice with them. We found out someone was saved. And so it's a very, it's a very happy time. So that is why some have interpreted this first love as, as the point at which they were first saved. I don't agree with that one either. I personally believe the first love was that first unforgettable feeling and experience of his love to them. It could have been experienced at conversion or it could have been experienced at, at subsequent times. But at any rate, he's calling for a remembrance, a renewal and a revival of it. Yes, a revival. Revival was the deepest desire 
of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it grew even stronger in the last part of his life. He believed, quote, in the necessity of revival, which he described as a quickening divine visitation, as the only vent that can avert ultimate spiritual disaster. And this conviction was so strong in him that he felt without revival in the church, there's really no hope for the Western world at all. <clears throat> so during true revival, the Holy Spirit is not adding or filling up our minds with further facts and theological information. Though head knowledge of divine things is necessary and important, it does not end there. He is moving upon our hearts, and we are deeply moved in our affections in our feelings, in our emotions. I say affected and not effected because true religious affections are always effected by the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual or upon communities. Now, now listen to this. Lloyd-Jones speaks of uh, this era, this time frame, uh, where he felt some wrong Wrong thinking and wrong speaking was, was propagated. It was a time when a very harmful idea was popular, popularized and set forth under the banner of so-called soul winning uh, or making converts. It was harmful because it was crippling to seeking souls that lacked assurance of their salvation. It was cruel in a sense because it denounced and downplayed human affections and feelings in the salvation of a human soul. It was the mechanical idea of God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Dry, emotionless, matter of fact. But more specifically, it was what Lloyd-Jones considered the despicable idea of just take it by faith. Don't worry about your feelings, just take it by faith. <clears throat> he despised this, dearly beloved, and I believe Edwards would have equally despised it because it is a denial of how God has made us. Our constitutional makeup. God has made us emotional creatures with feelings. And our salvation has everything to do with our feelings. Oh, if time allowed, we could show there was never a man that was more emotional full of emotion and feelings than Christ, who was touched by the feelings of our infirmities. Very strong words like moved express the depth of his emotions. He was moved with compassion. He rejoiced in spirit, in the depths of his being. Mary falls at his feet. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was the God-man, but a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus wept, we read. Of this affection of love in Jesus, the Jews marveled and used the word, Behold, 
Behold how he loved him. Don't tell me it's not about your feelings. It's not about our feelings. Try telling that to Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So in conclusion, Dane Orland in his book, A New Inner Relish, comments on Jonathan Edwards' oft-repeated thesis statement in his works, The Religious Affections, which is this, quoting from Edwards, True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. Who will deny that true religion consists in great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercises of the heart? Now, these holy affections he specifically lists are love, hope, joy, complacence, fear, hatred, and more. But I provide Edward's actual list of the affections because some argue that, well, affections are not the same as feelings. He's not talking about our emotions or, or feelings. So I would simply ask the question, going back to his list, Edward's list, is joy a feeling? Is fear a feeling? Is hatred a feeling? Is sorrow a feeling? Is love a feeling? <laughs> Orland argues this point of affections, feelings, and emotions being synonymous. He's referring to how the Holy Spirit in revival directly impacts our affections, which is a very moving experience that moves and motivates a response in us. He says, quote, This is the cause behind Christian motivation for love and service to God. It comes as one is changed from the inside out and not from the outside in. The latter is legalism. Christian faith that consists only of facts and not of enjoyment of these facts is not Christian faith. This divine and supernatural light, Ortland continues, is an utterly new pleasure in God. It is a matter of the affections which today we would probably call the emotions, end quote. Oh, may the Lord give us these religious affections, brethren, this hunger and thirst after our God of love, who in every way is love, that we may know revival, which is to know in the depths of our affections this love of Jesus, what it is. Let's pray.